dance before the Lord. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted-in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Tzav, Give an Order. The address is Vaikra, Leviticus, chapter 6, verse 1, or in your English Bibles, at 6, verse 8, through chapter 8, verse 36. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Arnold Ben Lyman. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. The written commentary was updated on March 8th of 2006. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim, venatan lanu et Torato. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha-Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. This week's parasha is called Tzav. And the word Tzav um, stems from the root word Tzava. The word Tzava means to command or charge, to give orders, um, uh, to lay a charge upon, give a commandment. In fact, um, the word Tzav, which simply means command or give an order, um, also gives rise to the familiar Hebrew word Mitzvah which means commandment or good deed in Judaism. In fact, one of our previous parashot, Tetzaveh, also uses the same root word, Tzavah. It's interesting to know how many words in Hebrew um, relate back to one another and if it will um, benefit you to know the root word um, from which a word uh, stems, then it will go a long way in helping to teach you um, Hebrew uh, what should we say, um, Hebrew vocabulary. In the Hebrew mindset, when Hashem commanded something to be done, like we have in our Torah portion here, it was always for the good of the individual who would perform it. God gives a command, therefore in the Hebrew mind, the command is designed to benefit the individual who is commanded. In fact, the rabbis go on to teach, I can't remember exactly where, but the gist of what the rabbis teach is that um, Greater is the reward for those who are commanded. Conversely, greater is the struggle for those who are given commandments than those who are not given commandments. And that works uh, across the board, both for the reward as well as for the difficulty. They often talk about how that the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination, steps in 
um, it's our it's our urge to to resist that which God tells us to do. The Yetzer Hara kicks in whenever God gives us a command. And even though that's a midrashic teaching from the rabbis, it seems to be very true. People like to do things when they um, realize. People like to do things when they feel that they're doing it of their own volition. But the minute someone tells them to do something, it seems to um, destroy their their joy or their their ability to do it with 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 gladness. They all of a sudden feel begrudged to do it or or compelled to do it. And that's not the way we should view God's commandments. We should be doing them delightfully and with a a right heart. And so our prayer to Hashem is that as he commands us as his children, we should also be praying for the desire and the ability and the empowerment to um, to walk into that which he commands of us. So, going back to our Torah portion, we find no exception. Moshe was commanded to instruct his brother Aharon, the first Kohen Agadol, the first high priest, on the ordinances concerning the Olah, which is the burnt offering. It's no exception, exception because God says, command Aaron to do these things. You know, the, the passage starts out, uh, let me turn to it here, verse 8, uh, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, el Moshe lemor. Command Aharon, tav et Aharon ve'et banayv lemor. Zot Torat Ha'olah. Command Aaron and his son, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. And so, God commands Aaron concerning the burnt offering, and then he equips Aaron with the necessary um, tools, as it were, to implement that which he is commanding him. As we look at um, this parasha, <clears throat> um, we notice that right up front that the the um, the instructions for the korbanot in last week's parasha, parashat vayikra, um, gave us the introduction, as it were, to the five um, types of korbanot we had in the order. We had the olah, the mincha, the shlamim, the chata'at, and then the asham, which, being interpreted, are the basically the the burn offering, the meal offering, the peace offering the sin offering, and then the guilt offering. <clears throat> and uh, when we open up this week's parasha, we find that we we see the very same five korbanot listed, but the difference this time is that the first listing in the first few chapters of Vayikra were um, aimed at or d- directed to any any person who wanted to bring such offerings, the people. And yet these um, set of commandments are um, actually... Um, given to, to the priests. So, I use a lot of Hebrew words in this section on Leviticus, unless I lose anyone in my Hebrew transliteration. Let me first do a brief grammar check uh, with some assistance from Devorah at the Hebrew Glossary website www.headcoverings-by-devorah.com and you can click on the Hebrew glossary. If you're using the printed materials with this audio, then just click on the link right in the printed materials, and it'll take you straight over to Devorah's Hebrew glossary. The list that I'm about to read off is a wonderful glossary. Um, actually, the the site itself is a wonderful glossary site. I recommend bookmarking it. Um, but in no particular order in my list here, I'm just going to ne- mention some of the um, words that are going to show up in uh, this week's portion or and or last week's portion. Okay, you ready? Um, again, in no particular order. The Hebrew word korban um, refers to offering or sacrifice. Its plural is korbanot. The Hebrew word olah 
represents burnt offering. It literally means that which goes up or that which ascends. The Hebrew word mincha um, is translated as gift or offering. Uh, later referring to the afternoon prayer session, if you'll recall. We call the afternoon prayer mincha as well. Um, the Hebrew word chata, um, the Hebrew word chatat, or the, sometimes you'll see it spelled chataat, refers to the sin offering. And um, actually the noun is, um, I'm sorry, the verb is chatat, and the uh, noun is chataat. So, let's keep going. The Hebrew word mitzvah, for which I just introduced at the beginning of this parasha, um, refers to commandment, or in he in Judaism it's simply referred to as good deed. The plural is mitzvot. The Hebrew word chatzer um, is the courtyard in front of the tabernacle, the place where uh, the priests spent a lot of their time as they officiated the sacrifices that the people would bring. That's the chatzer. The Hebrew word mishkan means tabernacle. The Hebrew word asham refers to the guilt or trespass offering. The Hebrew phrase Am Yisrael means the people of Israel. The Hebrew phrase B'nai Yisrael literally means sons of Israel, but sometimes it's translated in your Bibles as children of Israel, or again it's, it's kind of a, a synonym for people of Israel. The Hebrew phrase Hashem uh, refers to God. Um, it's a polite um, a circumlocution. Uh, whenever we don't want to use the ineffable name of God um, uh, too too often. Uh, Hashem is the stand-in there. Uh, it literally means the name. The Hebrew name or Hebrew term Yeshua is the Hebrew word for Jesus. Um, but etymologically it's related to the Hebrew words for Yah and salvation. Um, that's where we get Yeshua. The Hebrew term Ruach HaKodesh um, refers to Holy Spirit, or alternately, Spirit of Holiness, is how it's translated sometimes. The Hebrew name Moshe is simply the English name Moses. The Hebrew name Aharon is rendered into English as Aaron. The Hebrew term Kadosh, um, spelled with a K, is also, which is also spelled with a Q at times, it's a noun, and it means holy, set apart, um, the plural of this noun is kadoshim or kadoshim, as it's spelled alternately. And the adjective um, from the noun is kodesh. So we got kadosh, kodesh. Um, the Hebrew word pasuk uh, refers to a verse of scripture um, or a sentence. The plural is pasukim or poskim, sometimes it's uh, as it's pronounced in Ashkenazic circles. The Hebrew word Parasha, and sometimes it's spelled as Parsha, um, is a specified reading portion of the Torah. Its plural is Parashot, or sometimes you'll see it rendered as Parshiot. The Hebrew word Parashat, which is related to Parasha, is a portion identified by its specific name. Parashat is a, is a grammatical um, um, term when it's 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 a relational term uh, whenever we have a parasha like we have today we have parasha the parasha is named tzav therefore relationally we say parashat tzav it's a portion identified by its specific name again again today parashat tzav the hebrew term kohen spelled with a k o h e n which is also spelled sometimes with a c c o h e n kohen or kohen as it's pronounced in different ways means priest its plural is Kohenim.
the Hebrew term Kohen Hagadol, I'm sorry, Kohen Gadol, or also Kohen Hagadol, means high priest. Now, really, Kohen Gadol means high priest, but Kohen Hagadol means the high priest. We got the um, definite article between the uh, words Kohen and Gadol there. The Hebrew term Mitzbeach is the sacrificial altar. And if I'm correct, let me look real quick. Um, I want to just pull up my dictionary here. I think, I think, I think Mizbeach, um is related to another Hebrew word. I'm just checking real quick. That's right. Mizbeach, um, which is a noun, um, refers to the sacrificial altar. But it stems from a verb, zavach, which means to slaughter. I, f- I knew that off the top of my head, but I just want to make sure. The next word is kometz, and it really refers to kind of like a dry measure. It's um, a closed hand, literally, or a fist, but uh, it's an idiom that means a handful of flour. So viz, a handful of flour that's grasped by the three hands, the three um, fingers, I'm sorry, coming down uh, towards the palm of the hand, leaving the thumb and the pinky uh, extended or, or, or not being used. So that's, that's a kometz, okay? It's just a, a fistful of flour that the priest is going to measure out there. Uh, the next word, chelev, means animal fat. And this is related to the word, or its spelling is identical to the word for milk, which is chalav. Um, it's just we've got different um, vowel pointings ab- above it. Chelev, animal fat. The next word is dom. Um, spelled D-A-M, but pronounced as if it's D-O-M. This is the Hebrew word for blood. The next word on my list is treif. Um, alternately, we find it sh- we show it uh, we find it showing up in different sources as uh, treifa, spelled with T-R-E-I-F-A-H or T-R-E-F-A treifa, or just treif. Um, this literally means torn, um, as in limbs torn from animals. It refers to food that is not ritually fit. It is the opposite of kasher, or kosher. So something that's fit for consumption is referred to as kosher. And its opposite would be treif. The next word on my list is shlamim. Alternately, you'll see it's spelled shlamim with an E there. Uh, It refers to the peace offerings. The next word on my list is sefer. Also, sometimes you'll see sifra. Um, This is the Hebrew term designating a book, or a letter, or scroll. Its plural is sefarim. The next term on my list is sefer hachinuk. Sometimes you'll spell, see it spelled with a C-H-I. And other times you'll see it just spelled with a H-A. Sefer hachinuk. It is actually a term that's identifying an anonymous medieval work on the 613 precepts in the order of their appearance in scripture, giving their reasons and their laws and details. You remember... Uh, and recall that 613 is the number of laws that um, the Rambam, um, the Rambam, as his name is pronounced at times as well, Rambam, he uh, deta- he listed and organized the commandments along the lines of 613 negative and positive commandments. The name of the book, uh, Sefer HaChinuk, is taken by some as referring to its educational aim, viz. to touch the heart of my young son and his companions, and that every week they will learn the precepts that are included in the weekly portions of the law. Quote. Sefer HaChinuk is mainly based on the Sefer HaMitzvot and the Mishnah Torah of Maimonides, as I've mentioned already. Okay. 
The next term on my list is Torah. This is a very familiar term to us. It refers to God's teaching and instruction for mankind. Oftentimes it's referred to as the Law of Moses. Um, it refers to the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Pentateuch. The next term on my list is the Mishnah, spelled M-I-S-H-N-A-H, but it's also spelled without the H on the end at times, Mishnah, or sometimes it's spelled with an E, Mishneh. Um, the word refers to repetition. That's what Mishnah means. It comes from the word Shana, which means to go around or repeat, where we get our word for year in Hebrew. Um, repetition, teaching. The Mishnah is a collection. It's a body of work. It's a six-part review of Jewish law compiled in the early 3rd century under a man by the name of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, of which served as the focus of Talmudic interpretation. The Mishnah is the first part of the Talmud. A single passage from that work is also called Mishnah. Um, sometimes we'll say a Mishnah states, and so we'll have a part of the Talmud um, and just simply refer to it as Mishnah. The Mishnah is arranged in 63 tractates, or Masechet, is, is a tractate at times. It's called a Masechet. Um, the Mishnah is, has 63 tractates, and six divisions. And the six divisions of the um, Talmud, or the Mishnah, are the Zera'in, which deals with agriculture, the Moed, um, Tractate Moed, which deals with festivals, Tractate Nashim, which deals with marriage, Tractate Nezekin, which deals with damages, um, Tractate Kodashim, which deals with sacrifices, and Tractate Toharot, which deals with purity. And then the next word on my uh, vocabulary list is the word Talmud. Sometimes you'll hear it pronounced Talmud, sometimes you'll hear it pronounced Talmud. Um, it refers to a body of work um, of which the Mishnah is a part, um, but the word Talmud literally means study, or it comes from the uh, word for learning, and so the word Talmud refers to study or learning. The Hebrew word Lamed, um, which means to study, is where we get this word Talmud from. Uh, again, it's an encyclopedic collection of legalistic interpretations based upon the Mishnah. Now, I use the word legalistic there in a positive way. Legal-based, as in like case law. Um, uh, these interpretations are based upon the Mishnah, but they also contain homiletic material. Some are esoteric in nature. In fact, the Talmud um, is comprised of the Mishnah and the Gemara. And the Gemara is the last word on my vocabulary list. G-E-M-A-R-A, -A, Gemara, refers to completion. That's what the word hints at, Gemara. The name Gemara is derived from the Aramaic verb, um, G-M-R, the three root words, the, or three root letters, G-M-R, which also means to learn. Um, and this section of the Mishnah, or this section, I'm sorry, this section of the Talmud, the completion to the Mishnah, um, refers to the second part of the Talmud consisting of discussions and amplifications of the Mishnah, which is the first part. So, um, think of the Talmud as comprised of the Mishnah and the Gemara, and put those two together, and you have Talmud. Okay. Uh, with our grammar lesson behind us, let's go on to the teaching. On the surface, this parasha, as I mentioned, um, Tzav, and the previous one, uh, Vaikra, seem to be teaching us the same things, laws pertaining to the various korbanot. But a closer examination will reveal the essential difference between the two readings. So let's let um, the scholars at Tanakh.org, T-A-N-A-C-H.org, let, let's allow them to aid us in understanding the details uh, concerning these korbanot. And this now, from here, from this section until I 
um, say, end quote, is lifted straight from uh, um, Tanakh.org. Quote, in fact, the opening pasuk of each parsha reflects this distinction. Parashat Vaikra begins with, quote, Speak to B'nai Israel and tell them, if an individual among you wishes to offer a korban to God, then, end quote, uh, Parashat Tav, they go on to say, begins with, quote, command Aharon and his sons, saying, this is the procedure for bringing the Olah, end quote. And so what they're doing is they're simply showing us the difference between um, the body of instructions and who they are uh, aimed at, or who they are directed towards. They go on to teach, Parashat Tav is addressed specifically to the Kohanim, the priests, instructing them how to offer the Korbanot. Um, Parashat Vikra, by contrast, directs itself towards all of B'nai Israel, since everyone must know which specific korban he can or must bring in any given situation. Uh, they continue to explain these two similar yet different parshiot. Um, the internal order of tzav, they go on to say, is arranged according to which parts of the korban are consumed on the mizbeach, known as the achilat mizbeach, the um, the the uh, Sorry, my headphones is giving me problems there. Um, the Achilat Mizbeach is the uh, the, the the outer um, uh, the uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the altar. I'm sorry, I was going to say courtyard. The sa- the altar that sits in the outer courtyard, as opposed to the um, other altars. The Ola uh, is con- is totally consumed on the altar. It's totally consumed on the Mizbeach. The Mincha is either totally consumed or at least the handful that the priest pulls out, the kumets, that's totally consumed. Uh, for instance, in the case of a mincha brought by a kohen, you can reference chapter 6, verse 16, then um, the, 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 whole, the whole mincha offering itself, the whole korban, is completely burned up on the mizbeach, um, or at least a handful. While the notaret, which is that which is left over from, uh, from after he removes the kumets, that's eaten only by the kohenim. So basically, in the case of a mincha, we either have the whole thing being burned up, or we have a small portion being pulled out by the priest that gets burned up, or uh, and or then the remaining amount gets eaten only by the kohenim. Uh, and then they finally make a distinction by letting us know that the chatat and the asham are divided. The ch- the chelev, the fat of the chatat nasham goes on the mizbeach, goes on the altar, and the kohenim can eat the meat on the chatzer. Um, this is better known as kudshe kudashim, the holy of holies. Um, we say holy of holies not that they're eating it in the holy of holy place. Rather, whenever we have an offering that is not allowed to be um, um, eaten by the participant, rather it is only consumed by the priest, then we say it is a most holy, or a kodesh, or a kodesh kodeshim. The Gemara, they say, explains that this meat eaten by the Kohen uh, is considered a gift from God and not from the owner. Finally, they go on to mention that the shlamim, the peace offering, is divided but somewhat differently. The chelev, the fat, goes on the mizbeach and meat can be eaten by the owners anywhere in the camp, viz the uh, the meat of this one being eaten by the any uh, the the um, owners means that it is not kodesh kodeshim. All right, end quote. That's uh, the lifted quote from Tanakh.org. You can um, click on their commentary the Vatua Vaikra. Let's move now down farther into my own commentary. Um, this next section is entitled First Things First." 
in the life of a priest of those days, in case you may wonder what it was like to be a priest in those days, the first duty of the day consisted of changing the ashes of the tamid, the burnt offering, which was a perpetual offering that was burning on the Mizbeach all night long. If you remember from last week's um, parasha, we talked about how that the Ola, the tamid, um, the Ola tamid, which was uh, the tamid offering, that is, which was um, the first offering, the first korban that was um, used or uh, officiated at the beginning of the day were the two lambs. The um, the tamid offering refers to the two lambs, one that was offered up in the morning and the other which was offered up in the afternoon or sometimes we say the evening. Um, and it was that evening sacrifice um, of which the ashes were used or were, were, were stoked and kept going throughout the entire night. So um, during the morning hours, the first, um, the first duty of the priest was to tend to these ashes and to this offer or to this offering, this, this altar. The eternal flame was even kept lit on Shabbat. For those Torah students who are maybe sensing a contradiction, this does not contradict the Torah in another place where we read that it was forbidden to light a fire on the Sabbath. This was not kindling the fire. Rather, this fire was already lit. It didn't start anything new. It was just stoking, keeping lit, I should say, the one that was already there. And it stayed lit according to the command of the Lord. It is interesting to notice that according to the Mishnah in Tractate Yoma, these ashes were deposited outside of the sanctuary, uh, sanctuary at a ramp near the east entryway to the altar. Now the priest was then finished with his task of cleaning the eternal flame altar. Um, it was then left to another priest to remove the ashes that would eventually pile up in this location. So, if you remember, the, the ashes started on the Mizbeach, they started on the altar, and then a shovelful was deposited right next to the Mizbeach, and then the rest of the ashes were deposited over at this um, ramp. So we had three levels of holiness. We had right on top of the altar, then we had right next to the altar, and then the um, the other place outside the camp where uh, near this uh, entryway to the altar. It was this other altar. I'm sorry, this other priest who would been um, vie for the position of removing the rest of the ashes, because there were multiple priests serving in the tabernacle on any given occasion. This seemingly mundane task of removing the rest of the ashes. Uh, again, was vied for by whomever wished to perform it. It was actually, maybe they would like like um, cast lots or they would, um, they would they would hold some type of a mini contest as to who would get the, the honor of taking out these um, ashes. According to the Torah, at chapter 6, verse 3 through 4, he changed from his more holy garment into his less than holy garment to perform this task of moving the ashes from the Mizbeach area over to the ramp. Um, they were then taken outside of the camp to a designated pure place um, where God commanded them. So it's really neat that, I mean, even though it's ashes, we might think, well, gosh, that's just, that's the lowest of the low, cleaning out the cleaning out the ashes from the altar. But actually, the, the priests didn't see it as mundane and low. They saw it as lofty and something that was worthy of service to God. There's a great lesson couched in there. I won't go off into that, into that lesson in full, but for my commentary, let me just make this point. What do all of these details inform us about priestly duties in the camp of Israel? Well, since this was the very first mitzvah of the day, tending to the eternal flame, the near, uh, the, 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 I was going to say near tamid, but that's the eternal flame of the um, 
in the uh, sanctuary. Actually, there is a ref- a reference or a um, um, what should I say? A um, um, mm, what's the word I'm looking for? A uh, uh um, an inference maybe uh to the near tamid that's found in many sanctuaries. I'll get to that in a moment in my sanctu in my uh, commentary, but it is possible concerning the priests back then, that even back then the priests saw great significance of participating in serving the great most merciful God on yet another new day. Is it possible that that's how they, they viewed this uh, taking up the ashes? Because it wasn't until they trimmed, as it were, the, the altar ashes that they could begin the rest of the services. Can you, the reader, sense the anticipation and excitement as each new day carried with it a chance to get involved? and serving the one who struck all of Egypt with the deadly ten plagues. That's what's happening, is they get involved in serving God on whatever level is possible. God, the one who opened up the Sea of Reeds and made his people to cross over on dried ground, this is the God that they told themselves that we are serving. He is the one who brought them out, both slave and free, Egyptian and Israelite, to the foot of Mount Sinai. And he is the one who graciously gave them his words of life, his Torah. This is the God we're serving. It's not just a God who doesn't care. It's not just a God who needs appeasement. It's a God who desires a personal relationship with us. That's why the priests would um, vie for that position, because they want to to begin to get... um, their feet wet, as it were, into serving God. You see, the Talmud records for us that the very same Mizbeach, the very same altar that was used to keep this eternal flame burning, according to the Talmud, a miracle took place. This altar, which, if you remember, was constructed of acacia wood overlaid with copper, this altar lasted for about 116 years during which according to the Talmud the fire never died the thin copper layer never melted and the wooden structure underneath never became charred many miracles recorded in the Talmud regarding the um, the service of the tabernacle uh, whether or not it's true, we don't really have room to debate now, do we? We don't have proof whether it's true or whether it's not true. So it's probably best to just take it at face value and believe that it's true. After all, it was a supernatural God, right? Why not? When Hashem in- institutes a mitzvah, this is the way I interact with this particular um, information that's given to me. When Hashem institutes a mitzvah, a commandment, he is sure to provide the necessary miracle, as it were, in which we, the ordinary, can perform it. Oh yes, God can provide miracles if need be, and I believe that's exactly what happened. I believe the Talmud is accurate there when it talks about those miracles. Today, in most synagogues around the world, as I was making allusion to, Observers can notice the symbolic lamp which rests near or sometimes above the ark containing the Torah scrolls. This light is known as the ner tamid. Ner means light, tamid means eternal. So the phrase generally refers to the eternal flame. And it actually represents this very mitzvah of keeping the mizbeach lit. That's what the Ner Tamid represents. It represents this very mitzvah, which opens up our portion in Parashat Zav. Isn't that interesting uh, information? So next time you visit a synagogue, look at the Ner Tamid, and you'll be reminded that this is Judaism's way of reminding themselves that God commanded the children of Israel to keep the altar lit continually. That's what the light reminds them of. 
All right, let's move on. The next section in my commentary is entitled, Ye are the light of the world. Of course, I'm getting that phrase from Yeshua's statement in Matthew chapter 5, I believe. Allow me to conduct a midrash, or a homiletic application of scripture, uh, for this next section. Referring to this eternal lamp, this eternal light, um, referring to the fact that the altar continually stayed lit, that even when they picked up and moved the camp, the tabernacle as it were, that they always had to have some portion of the coals or or of the um, altar burning so that when they um, set up camp in the next location, they were able to um, light up the altar using these existing um, coals or these existing embers as it were from the altar. Let me draw Midrash from that. Since this eternal flame dwelt near the holiest place where the Aaron Kodesh, the Ark of the Covenant, was housed, and since within the Ark, the testimony, um, that is, the Torah written by the finger of God, was also kept, can we see a correlation between these natural representations and our lives as living witnesses today? I think we can. How so? Well, the Torah promises that when we believers, when we Jew and Gentile, when we surrender to the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and, uh, and, and, and as in the surrender, we become living vessels to be used for his glory. I believe that he, God, places the Torah on our inward parts, our hearts. That's exactly what the Torah teaches us. In fact, Yeshua described us as light for the world. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. That's why the um, section is entitled, You're the Light of the World. Um, by the Master calling us the light of the world. And, and the impact and the weight of that statement, um, it's really a blessing for him to describe um, us in that spiritual way when he says we're the light of the world. He's talking about the light that is within us. Okay, Obviously, the light is not our own. The light is his. It's the light of the Messiah that allows us to shine. But given the fact that um, the Messiah himself, who is the source of all light, given the fact that he is describing us this way, makes it more, um, makes it even more a blessing. Uh, when we, his children, allow his light, the Messiah, to be kindled within us, then the entire world is made to see the wonderful goodness of his perfect, uh, of his perfect grace and his mercy, his perfected grace. Um, it's perfected in us because it's renewed. We are not perfect. And so grace is perfected in us as we daily surrender ourselves to us. Now his grace is perfect, but our grace needs to be perfected on a daily basis. So there's a play on words there. Um, the entire world gains a chance to become involved in the perfect plans and the purposes that our loving Heavenly Abba has prepared for those who what? Genuinely love God. If we genuinely love God, we're going to love the Messiah. And if we love the Messiah, then he'll place his spirit within us, his words of life, his Torah. He'll write his laws on our hearts and on our minds, and his light will begin to shine from within us. And as we obediently walk out his commandments, remember Yeshua said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. As we walk out those commandments, we begin to see the light shine in our very lives and through our very lives. We must keep our eternal lamp lit for those around us to see. If Yeshua said that we are light of light to the world and that we are the light of the world, 
then we must keep our lamps lit. How do we do this? I'm glad you asked. The Torah tells us that we must daily maintain these temples. That's what Paul uh, alluded to in um, Romans, of which I'm going to read chapter 12 here, a few verses in a moment. But as living lamps, the day-to-day activities of this world can do what? They can fill us with ashes as we attempt to maintain a constant flame upon the the altar of our souls. We are the altar. We are the Mizbeach. And the fire that burns within us is the light of God, the light of Messiah. And so as the fire burns, there is a consumption of ourselves, and there is a consumption of the sin within us. Um, There is a consumption of the sacrifice that we offer. And so, keeping my midrash going, the the ashes are going to pile up. And what is our responsibility as priests? Well, just like the priests in the Torah portion, we're required to um, remove the ashes and, as it were, trim the altar, like you might trim the wick of a candle that's burning uh, too, too, air, uh, too uh, sporadically. Um, it's up to us to change these ashes. We need to remove them from our lives on a day-to-day basis. We cannot let the ashes pile up within us. As with the actual eternal flame... On the Mizbeach of that day, Hashem understood that in order to perform this mitzvah, the priests had to monitor the flame on an everyday basis. They could not just light it up and then walk away and hope that everything would take care of itself. No, they had to babysit as it were, and that's a good thing. So it is with our own lives today. We must not let the flame of the good news of the Messiah's atoning death extinguish from our temples even for a single day. We cannot let the light go out within us. Why? Because the world needs to see this light continually. They need to see the light within us. Just like the light of the Mizbeach needed to burn continually. The lesson is obvious. The children of Israel, as they approached the altar, needed the light burning so that as they brought their sacrifices, a quarter of a note, the priest could then officiate his duties. If the light had gone out, if the candle had gone out, if the flame had burned down and the priest had failed to maintain the fire, well then how could the people offer their service to God? There was no flame there to consume the the sacrifice when it called for an olah. So you see, it's up to us to keep this candle burning, this fire burning within us. I keep using the word candle there because that's, I guess, the best way for us to relate. Um, I'm trying to avoid using the imagery of, like, say, a fireplace. Um, uh, Candles seem to be more um, uh, readily used in in religious ceremonies. Uh, But this light needs to burn within us. and, and, And yet, for us, it will also entail a daily maintenance of removing the ashes and checking to see if the flame is burning brightly. Now again, the picture I'm painting here is a synergistic work between ourselves and the Spirit of God within us. I'm not trying to suggest that we maintain the light under our own power. How do we accomplish this awesome task of keeping the light lit and trimming the ashes? I'm glad you asked. In the Mishkan, uh, the tabernacle, Hashem saw to it that the priest uh, never had to want for supplies. Everything the priest needed to perform his functions and his daily duties was made readily available and, uh, and, and 
upkept, as it were, by God Himself. Uh, you know, I, I, was, I talked about how that the uh, um, the altar did not burn down, uh, the the copper did not melt. Do you think that our God is any different today? Do you think that if He asks us to maintain the flame within us, do you think that as Yeshua challenged us to be lights to the world, do you think that He would not also equip us with the necessary um, power and 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 uh, wherewithal, as it were, to perform this task. I think that he's going to to equip us. Let's read Romans chapter twelve, um, verses one. Verse one. I was going to read the rest, but just verse one will suffice, so that we can see this commandment in view. Quote: I exhort you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer yourselves as a sacrifice, living and set apart for God. This will please Him. It is the logical temple worship. For you, end quote. That's Romans twelve one is rendered from um, David Stern CJB, Complete Jewish Bible. Paul, exhorting his followers, which includes me and you today, exhorting us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, is aware of the imagery drawn from the priests and the temple duties as described here in Leviticus. We see here in this passage in Romans that we ourselves are likened to the service of the priests, of which we're reading about right in Leviticus now. Yes, as believers in Messiah, we are all priests unto our Lord. That's what Peter tells us. We are a kingdom of priests. Just like Israel was described using this moniker, a kingdom of priests. This label, we too are described this way in the book of uh, Peter. Just as the light, holiness, and sanctity of the Mishkan was maintained by the daily service of the priests, so too our lives are to be maintained and marked by a constant performance of the commandments. That's really what the priests were doing, right? God said do this, and they did it. God said don't do that, and they didn't do it. They were doing God's bidding. They were not simply running around making things up on their own, improvising as it were. Everything they did was according to the instructions given through Moshe to the priests. The example is clear for us today. The things that we should be doing to maintain our temples or maintaining the altar within our lives is keeping the commandments. That is, a constant, what? Surrendering to his light and to his holiness. A surrender to God is keeping the commandments. I'm not talking about perfunctorily walking out the commandments with no love for God or man. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about surrendering our lives to God on a daily basis. And in that surrender, we open ourselves up to do his bidding. We say, God, here I am. Hineni, what do you ask of me? And as God's Spirit instructs us, we do. We obey. And we obey under the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Let's read on. Let's read uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. In other words, quote, Do not let yourselves be conformed to the standards of the Olam Hazet, the age that is here now, this age. Do not let yourselves be conformed to um, the world, as, as, as Paul might call it. Instead, let yourselves... Keep letting yourselves be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you will know what God wants and will agree that what he wants is good, satisfying, and able to succeed. End quote. 
It's a very, very good verse. Now let's go back and exegete it a little bit, okay? The Olam Hazah in this um, passage, as I mentioned, is this age. The Olam Hazah is this age. And what are the standards of the world around us in which we live? Is it holiness? I don't think so. I think not. In fact, just just the pull of everyday living as a way of what? Dimming the light within our spiritual lives if we allow it? The day-to-day grind will wear you out if you just let it. If you just sit back and coast through life, even as a believer, life will wear you down, and I promise you, your altar flame will diminish. It will dwindle. Imagine what would have happened, as it were, to the eternal flame of the Mishkan if the priest allowed the mundane flow of everyday life to engulf his way of thinking. What would happen if the priest said, you know what, this is just boring. I'm just sick to death of doing these things. I cannot put up with it anymore, as people say. I'm losing my mind. I can't go on with living as a priest. Uh, I'm just going to let my duty slack off and fall uh, fall by the wayside. I'm not going to trim the altar. I'm not going to remove the ashes. I'm not going to perform the sacrifices. What would happen? He would fail in his duties, and you know what? He would be deserve. He would he would deserve to be removed from office. You think it's any different today? God calls us the kingdom of priests, and we think that our duties aren't any different. What the heck do you think the duty of a priest is? Yes, I, I, I'm trying to shock us back into reality. We are priests, and if we want to know what the priestly duty is, then we need to read the book of Leviticus and understand. Now, we're not called to offer up sacrifices on a physical altar. There is no temple, there is no tabernacle. We can't do that. But the altar is within us. It's within our very lives. It's within our families, and within our communities. And as we serve God, and as we interact with one another, we cannot allow the the activities of everyday life to wear us down. We've got to tap in to the Spirit of God if we are to perform our duties. Imagine having to attend to the sacrificial needs of millions of people day after day, year after year. Imagine you're a priest living in the days of the Tanakh. Blood, 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 and more blood every day. It would be easy, from our 21st century perspective, to become enamored and bogged down with all of the minute details of the priestly functions, were it not for the fact that this particular service played such a vital role in the community of God's chosen ones. You see how important it is for us to have the mind of a priest of God? When God describes us as priests, it's no light matter. In other words, they the priests that I'm describing in my Midrash here, the priests that we're reading about in the Torah portion, they, like us today, must of necessity remind themselves daily, as it were, for whom this service is being performed. In other words, let me just state it clearly. They needed to saturate themselves with the holiness of a holy God. And our duty today, as priests, as believers in Yeshua, is no different. We must saturate ourselves with the holiness of a holy God. We must press in to His goodness and His mercy. We must bask in His glory. 
We must clothe ourselves with the Spirit of Messiah on a daily basis. There's no room for allowing the day-to-day activities to, 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 to draw us down, to, to tear us down. I'm not saying that we don't get stressed from time to time. I'm not saying that we don't, uh, how do we say in church circles, go through something. We do go through things. But we should not, we should not fail in our race, in our running. We should not slow down uh, to the point that we feel like giving up. There's no room for quitting in God's race as a priest. Because the Holy Spirit has empowered us to continue to run the race. The satisfaction of the priests of that day must have come from the fact that many of these functions that were spoken of in the Torah are described as, quote, a satisfying aroma unto Hashem. We can read chapter 6, verse 8, or verse 15 in your English Bibles, as well as um, verse 14, which is verse 21 in your English Bibles. At this point in time, um, this commentary has been running for about 45 minutes, so I'm going to break it off here. And um, this will be portion A, or uh, part A of the commentary. I encourage you to continue listening to um, the audio parasha as I uh, expound upon it through my commentary. And so, um, get ready for part B of Parashat Zav. <laughs> 